She is known as the most beautiful queen in English history and is immortalised to modern audiences as the White Queen thanks to the book and television series of the same name from the work of Philippa Gregory. And yet despite her beauty and her undeniable success in her role as Queen of England, Elizabeth Woodville was the subject of intense scrutiny and at times hatred by the elite of her husband's royal court. In marrying Edward IV, Elizabeth Woodville's family were catapulted from relative obscurity into being members of the royal family, and although her husband did appear to love her dearly, this would not be the case for members of his own family. Elizabeth's position as queen would be challenged after the death of her husband and two of her sons would go on to become, perhaps, the most famous royal brothers in English history, or as they are known to us, the princes in the tower. The marriage of her eldest daughter, Elizabeth of York, to the Lancastrian Henry Tudor brought decades of infighting within the English nobility to its close, but in so doing it all but shut Elizabeth Woodville out of influence, with Margaret Beaufort, the mother of the new King Henry VII, superseding her position as the Grand Dame of the Royal Court. So who was Elizabeth Woodville? What was her early life like? How did she captivate a king known for his obsession with women? And why did she die in relative obscurity, cast out from the royal family that she had been the centre of for decades? Welcome back to the Tudor Chest Podcast, episode 23, The Life of Elizabeth Woodville, Queen, King Mother, Queen Mother and Survivor. Sadly, we have no confirmed date of birth for Elizabeth Woodville, although it is believed that she was born around 1537 at Grafton Regis in Northamptonshire. What we do know beyond doubt is that she was the firstborn child of her parents, and that she would be joined by a total of 13 other siblings, of whom 12 reached adulthood, which must have been something of a record for the time. Her parents were a fascinating mix, owing to their colossal difference in social status. Elizabeth's father was Richard Woodville, the son of a lowly chamberlain of the same name to John of Lancaster, Duke of Bedford. The Duke of Bedford was the third-born son of King Henry IV, and as such a brother of Henry V and an uncle of Henry VI. By contrast, Elizabeth Woodville's mother, Jaquetta, was extraordinarily noble, being the second-born child of Peter I, Count of St. Paul, almost a king in his own right. Jaquetta's marriage to Richard Woodville was not her first. Her first, owing to her own great rank, was decided for her and happened to be to the aforementioned Duke of Bedford, which made Jaquetta an aunt by marriage to the future King Henry VI, as well as giving her the title the Duchess of Bedford, a title that she would retain and use for life, as it outranked all of the other titles that she would later receive. The marriage did not last long and was childless, with the Duke dying in 1435. Jaquetta was recalled to England by Henry VI, and the man sent to escort her home was none other than Richard Woodville Jr. The couple fell in love on their journey home and married in secret sometime in early 1437. 
This secret marriage, for love, perhaps explains why Jaquetta voiced no concern when years later her eldest daughter would do the same, although this time with the King of England no less. When news of Jaquetta and Richard Woodville's marriage broke out, it was met with huge shock, seen as a major breach of etiquette, for although the Woodvilles were an old and respectable family, they were mere members of the gentry rather than the nobility. They were a landed and wealthy family that had previously produced commissioners of the peace, sheriffs and local MPs, but they could count no peers of the realm among their number. By contrast, Jaquetta was one of the highest ranking women in England, and furthermore had pledged upon the death of her first husband that she would not marry without first obtaining royal permission. Perhaps the decision of marrying in secret was owing to the fact that the couple would have known it would have been rejected, and so they would follow the mantra of asking for forgiveness rather than permission. Even so, when the marriage did become public, the king was outraged and refused at first to see the couple. He then slapped them with a hefty fine of £1,000, approximately £700,000 by modern standards, which thankfully sufficiently mollified the king, who then pardoned Jaquetta and Richard on the 24th of October 1437, with some historians putting forward the theory that this pardon deliberately coincided with the birth of the couple's firstborn child, Elizabeth. As I referenced earlier, Jaquetta would give her husband a huge brood of children, and so it wasn't long after the birth of Elizabeth that she was followed in quick succession by a series of six brothers and seven sisters. Like Elizabeth, exact dates of birth can only be guessed at, as can the exact order in which the children were born. But it seems probable that after Elizabeth came along her first brother, Louis, who would be the one and only child of the couple to die in his childhood. A sister, Anne, then came along to be followed by two brothers, Anthony and John. At the point at which Jaquetta Woodville gave birth to her second daughter, who took her mother's name, Elizabeth, now aged approximately seven, was sent to live in another landed gentry household. This was customary for the time and devised as a good way of developing strong social contacts between houses for the future. Given Elizabeth's first marriage, it seems reasonable to conclude that she entered the household of Sir Edward Grey and his wife Elizabeth, Lady Ferrers. There, she would undergo all of the traditional lessons deemed appropriate for young women of her birth, learning to read music, do needlework, dancing, as well as the more academic studies in both reading and writing in English, French and Latin, and a base-level understanding of mathematics, deemed necessary given that at some point she would likely oversee the day-to-day -day running of her future husband's household. As is suggested by Elizabeth's parents' ability to pay off the huge fine that they received by virtue of their clandestine marriage, it was clear that the Woodvilles were wealthy. However, with the Hundred Years' War still in living memory and the Wars of the Roses conflict beginning in earnest, the family's finances became strained, and as a result, by now a 14-year-old Elizabeth married John Grey in 1452 as a means of lessening the pressure on her family and by extension setting her up for the future. Her husband was, after all, the heir to the Ferrers of Groby Barony. Even for the time, marriage at 14 was still relatively young, however, especially as the couple were living under the same roof as Elizabeth's in-laws, and so it seems probable that they made the decision to wait for a few years before having children, with the first of their two sons, Thomas, born in around 1455, by which point Elizabeth would have been about 18. Thomas was joined by a brother, Richard, two years later. 
Elizabeth's husband, like her own family, was a committed Lancastrian and would fight against the Yorkists in the name of Henry VI on several occasions. Such was his service to the beleaguered king that John Grey was knighted ahead of the Second Battle of St Albans that took place in 1461. Alas, it was at this battle that he would be killed, leaving Elizabeth a widow at an early age with two young children in tow. The death of her husband should have seen Elizabeth, at least to Elizabeth's mind, inherit a large portion of his estate. However, his family challenged this, and as such, now penniless, she was forced to return home to the family at Grafton. She would, however, not allow her inheritance to go without a fight, and so, according to legend, she hatched a plot which would enable her to plead her case directly to the one person who could overturn the actions of her former in-laws, the man who her husband had died fighting against, King Edward IV himself. Now, exactly whether what happened next is categorically true is, of course, difficult to say. However, it is one of the most well-trodden aspects of Elizabeth and Edward's story, and so it seems logical to assume that there was at least some kernel of truth in there. Elizabeth Woodville was famously beautiful, with a heart-shaped face, pale skin, piercing blue-grey eyes, and long, flowing, naturally blonde hair. She was also slender and very elegant. She was, in effect, the perfect representation of what the time saw as the very essence of beauty, and as such, she has often been referred to as the most beautiful queen in English history. Even her many enemies were willing to acknowledge her great beauty. If the legend of what she chose to do is correct, then it would seem that Elizabeth was not completely ignorant of her own good looks, or the fact that they could entrance the young and lusty king who was famed for his obsession with women. The story goes that Elizabeth became aware that the king would be hunting near to her family home, and given that her brother Antony was among the king's party, it seems logical to conclude that she was given this nugget of information by her own brother. She duly set out to quietly ambush the king by organising a picnic with her two young sons, ensuring that they were finely dressed and that she looked her most ravishing. She chose a spot below a large oak tree and hoped that the hunting party would go past, which they did. Upon seeing Elizabeth, the king halted his procession and jumped down from his horse to speak with her. Elizabeth then put forward her case, which the king agreed to examine. Instantly infatuated by her great beauty, he requested there and then that she would become his mistress, which a proud Elizabeth supposedly refused. As I have already said, Edward IV was famous for his love of women. He was also the exact opposite of the pious, frail, and largely ineffective Henry VI, and as such was a very popular figure with the common people, particularly in the capital. He did have many mistresses, his best known being Jane Shaw, Another part of the legend of Elizabeth and Edward is that upon their first meeting and his proposition of making Elizabeth his mistress, when she refused, he attempted to force himself upon her, with Elizabeth then supposedly pulling a knife out and threatening suicide rather than submitting to his force. The legend then tells us that driven mad by his desire for Elizabeth, Edward promptly proposed marriage just so that he could bed her. The marriage then took place in secret, with very few present, in fact it was just her mother, Jaquetta, and two maids in waiting, and although it is not definitively proven, a date of the 1st of May 1464 is conjectured as the day of the marriage, which took place in a small church within the Woodville's family lands. 
This telling of the couple's meeting and later secret marriage is retold in the Star series The White Queen, with it being put forward that when Elizabeth's brother Anthony learns of it, he scolds Elizabeth for being a fool and that Edward had only pretended to marry her simply to get her in the sack, basically. What then plays out in the storyline is a terrified Elizabeth, unsure whether to trust in her marriage with a man that arguably she barely knows, or to accept the words of her brother. Now this part of the White Queen has, to the best of my knowledge, no basis in fact, although the secret nature of the marriage and the fact that Edward's chief supporter, the Earl of Warwick, was not aware of it is absolutely true, as is the fact that because of the secrecy of the union, Elizabeth, despite being queen from the moment that she married Edward, would spend several months entirely away from the court with the English people completely ignorant of the fact that they had a new queen. It would not be until October of 1464, five months after their marriage, that Edward finally broke the news to his council that he was married and revealed the identity of his secret queen. In these early years of his reign, Edward IV's governance of England was dependent upon a small circle of supporters, most infamously via his cousin Richard Neville, 16th Earl of Warwick, known to history as Warwick the Kingmaker, for the large part that he played in putting Edward on the throne in the first place. When Warwick discovered what his cousin had done, he was apoplectic. He had been busy negotiating what would have been a highly valuable marriage for Edward with Bona of Savoy, which would ensure an alliance with France in an effort to thwart a similar arrangement being made by his sworn enemy, Margaret of Anjou, the wife of the deposed Henry VI. When Edward's marriage to Elizabeth, who we must keep in mind was both a commoner and from a family of Lancastrian supporters, became public, Warwick was understandably both embarrassed and offended. It made him a laughingstock with the elite of Europe, and in turn left his relationship with Edward IV in tatters. The match was also badly received by the Privy Council, who according to Jean de Warenne, told Edward with great frankness that he must know that she was no wife for a prince such as himself. Following the announcement of the royal marriage, the Woodvilles were instantly catapulted into the core of the royal court, and this would be one of the key grievances which the well-established nobility of England had to grapple with, for behind Elizabeth's arrival was a virtual army of brothers, sisters and cousins who all needed good marriages, and naturally they found them. With her mother Jaquetta by her side, Queen Elizabeth, as she was now known, began the process of uniting her large family with all of the grander noble families across the country. Three of her sisters, for example, married the sons of the Earls of Kent, Essex and Pembroke. Another sister, Catherine, married the Queen's 11-year-old ward, Henry Stafford, 2nd Duke of Buckingham, who later joined Edward IV's brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, in opposition to the Woodvilles after the death of Edward IV. Now, whilst it can be argued that all of these unions were deemed entirely appropriate and that it's what any 15th century royal family would do, there was one example of a marriage which was frankly gross and does shine something of a negative light on how Elizabeth and her mother organised who would marry who. For Elizabeth's 20-year-old brother, John, married the staggeringly wealthy Catherine, Duchess of Norfolk, who was the aunt of Edward IV and the Earl of Warwick. She had been widowed three times and was in her 60s, meaning that zero children were expected from this union, and so it was viewed, I suppose quite fairly, as nothing more than a grasping attempt to ensure that John got a huge payout when his elderly wife would naturally predecease him. 
Just over a year after she had secretly married Edward IV, Elizabeth was finally crowned Queen of England on the 26th of May 1465, with many inside the court and even the king's inner circle still opposing the marriage and by extension her coronation. However, Elizabeth's coronation was spectacular and followed tradition. The new queen spent the night before she was crowned at the Tower of London, as was customary, before a glittering parade to Westminster Abbey. She was anointed and then crowned before being seated on her own throne. Her position as Queen of England was now unassailable. That she was now God's anointed queen did not, however, mean that she was welcomed by large swathes of the court, and she would continue to be ostracised by many. A key factor in the continued hostility towards her queenship was based on both the classism of the day, but also the behaviour of the Woodvilles, with Elizabeth at its core. Elizabeth was technically a mere commoner before her sudden secret marriage to Edward IV, and it was this fact that was germane to the backlash against her queenship. Classism of the time led many to label her arrogant and disrespectful, qualities deemed inappropriate in someone of, as it was seen, such low birth, but seen as normal by a lady of higher rank, such as her predecessor, the loathed Margaret of Anjou. Such was Elizabeth's unpopularity that George Duke of Clarence, the rebellious younger brother of her husband, would later accuse her of witchcraft, suggesting that she was responsible for the death of his wife Isabel Neville, who was the elder daughter of the Earl of Warwick. Now for what it's worth, most historians believe that Isabel died of either childbed fever or consumption, and furthermore, George did not limit accusations of Isabel's death solely to the hands of Elizabeth Woodville, for he would also accuse two of Isabel's own servants of poisoning her, overseeing their execution, for which he would then be judged a murderer when he suffered his own inevitable fall from favour. What went further against Elizabeth Woodville's queenship was the continued hostility from the Earl of Warwick, especially as her own relatives, especially her brother Anthony, 2nd Earl Rivers, began to challenge Warwick's preeminence with the king and in the English political sphere. It was this that acted as the impetus for Warwick to conspire with his son-in-law, the aforementioned George, Duke of Clarence, to accuse Elizabeth Woodville's mother, Jaquetta, of practising witchcraft, a charge which was thankfully dropped when Jaquetta's son-in-law, the king, took control and had the accusation thrown out of court. One area of queenship that no one could claim Elizabeth failed to deliver on was in producing a large brood of children for her lusty husband. Now, it wasn't all smooth sailing, for the couple would have three daughters before the all-important sons came along, but this also appears to have not especially bothered Edward IV. Elizabeth had, after all, born two sons from her first husband, and they were both young enough to produce many more children. Although we can only speak with hindsight because we know that Elizabeth did produce three princes, the king's apparent love for his daughters, quite equally to the love that he had for his sons, is definitely one of the most endearing qualities in an already likeable king. We must not forget that he was the grandfather of Henry VIII, who held no such equal fondness for his daughters as he did his only son. The couple's first child, a daughter, Elizabeth, was born in February 1466. Just 18 months later, another princess, Mary, came along, and 17 months later, after Mary, the couple's third child, Princess Cecily, was born. In 1470, the couple were elated when the Queen delivered their first son, Edward, named in honour of his father. The boy was strong and healthy, and so the York dynasty had its heir. In 1472, the Queen delivered another princess, Margaret, who sadly did not survive the year, 
but at the time of their daughter's premature death, the Queen was already pregnant again, and in August 1473, she was delivered of their second son, Richard, who, like his older brother, was robust. As the Queen was delivering what was an almost endless round of royal offspring, her brother-in-law Clarence, and bitterest enemy the Earl of Warwick, rose not once but twice in revolt against Edward IV. In 1469, Queen Elizabeth's father Richard and one of her brothers, John, accompanied the King on a march north to put down what was thought to be a minor rebellion, supporting Clarence as the true legitimate King. Before they met the rebels, both the Earl of Warwick and the Duke of Clarence had announced their support for the rebellion, and by the time that Edward IV met with the rebels, the rebel force was far stronger than expected. In a parley, the rebels told the king that they had no fight with him, but advised him to distance himself from the Woodvilles. In no position to argue, given the size of the force, the king sent the Woodville party away. The two men went first to the family house at Grafton, and from there they made their way west towards Wales, before being captured by the Earl of Warwick and beheaded. Although Warwick captured Edward IV, there was little support for his actions, and it soon became clear that the country could not function without the king's liberty. In 1470, Warwick and Clarence led another attempt to remove Edward IV from the throne, but this time they would form an alliance with the former Lancastrian queen and the Yorkists' greatest enemy, Margaret of Anjou. Such an alliance was repellent to George, Duke of Clarence, as it had been on Margaret of Anjou's orders that both his father and brother were killed. Warwick landed in England with an army of over 30,000, necessitating Edward IV's fleeing to Flanders, opening up the throne, which Warwick gave back to the king that he had helped to oust, Henry VI. During her husband's temporary fall from power, Queen Elizabeth sought sanctuary in Westminster Abbey. The following year, however, Edward IV returned from exile, defeated Warwick at the Battle of Barnet, and the Lancastrians at the Battle of Tewkesbury. Henry VI died shortly afterwards in the Tower of London, although many believe that he was secretly murdered on the orders of the reinstated Edward IV. And for now at least, Edward and Queen Elizabeth could return to ruling a stable land and, of course, produce further children. For all of the drama, and there was a lot of it, Queen Elizabeth followed the expected conventions of the day when it came to her queenly duties, including doing lots of charity work, providing arms to the poor, and acting as a patroness to several important bodies, including Queen's College, Cambridge. Her acts included making religious pilgrimages and founding the Chapel of St Erasmus in Westminster Abbey. The fact that she was able to do all of this whilst almost perpetually pregnant is highly commendable. Of course, the peace settled upon England following her husband's final and decisive defeat of his enemies could not last forever, although it would not be war or revolution which rocked the royal family to its core, but instead the sudden death of the king himself. Edward IV, as I have previously explained, was a lively, energetic and fun character. Whilst commendable attributes, it also made him indulgent and raucous. He was a laugh, but those years of laughter were often brought on by the king's perchance for a rich and indulgent lifestyle. Although handsome and muscular in his youth, the trappings of being a king resulted in an ever-increasing waistline, and although he would not grow quite as rotund as his grandson Henry VIII would do at the end of his life, Edward IV did nonetheless put on considerable weight in his later years. After going out fishing at Easter in 1483, he fell fatally ill, throwing the court into chaos. Knowing that he was dying, he managed to hold on long enough to add codicils to his will, the most significant of which being the naming of his younger brother, 
Richard, Duke of Gloucester, as protector of England during the minority rule of his eldest son. Edward IV died on the 9th of April 1483 at the age of 40. Although we cannot say for certain how he died, historians put it down to either a form of pneumonia or organ failure. Although he had always taken mistresses, which was par for the course for 15th century kings, his marriage to Queen Elizabeth had always been strong. He always came back to his wife, and their love story is one of the most touching and real in all of British royal history. Following her husband's demise, Elizabeth became known as the Queen Dowager. Edward IV's decision to name his brother as protector of the realm was one not supported by the Queen, who had hoped that her brother Antony would fill the role, given his close day-to-day -day involvement in the new young king's life, for he had been appointed governor to the prince's household back in 1472 by the king himself. Now the Woodvilles were notorious for closing ranks at situations such as this, and to the new Lord Protector Richard, it looked as if they would attempt to monopolise power and deprive him of the authority given by his late brother. Richard therefore moved quickly to take control of the young king, and in so doing, had Anthony Woodville and also the Dowager Queen's son Richard Grey by her first marriage arrested. The young King Edward V was then transferred to the Tower of London, as was customary to await his coronation. With her younger son and daughters, Elizabeth sought sanctuary once again in Westminster Abbey. On the 25th of June 1483, Richard had Richard Grey and Anthony Rivers executed at Pontefract Castle in Yorkshire. Elizabeth had therefore lived to witness the execution of her father, two of her brothers, and now one of her sons. A titulus regis, or Act of Parliament, was then drafted on Richard's orders, which declared that Edward IV's children by Elizabeth were illegitimate, on the grounds that Edward IV had a pre-contract with the widow Lady Eleanor Talbot. This supposed pre-contract was considered legally binding, which rendered any other marriage contract, such as the one between Edward and Elizabeth, as invalid, and by extension any children begot would be deemed illegitimate. There is still a major debate as to whether Richard genuinely believed this story about the supposed pre-contract, or whether he used it as a means of clearing his path to the throne. I am inclined to go with the latter for one key reason. Let us say that there was a genuine pre-contract, then under the laws of the time, the marriage of Edward IV and Elizabeth would have indeed been considered bigamous, and any children born thus illegitimate. However, the same cannot be said of the children born to the middle York brother, George, Duke of Clarence, these being Edward, Earl of Warwick, and Lady Margaret of Clarence, known more famously as Lady Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury. The transference of the crown via primogeniture was now well established, and so with Edward IV's children out of the running and George, Duke of Clarence dead, then the rightful heir to the throne was Clarence's son, Edward, who was too ahead of Richard in the line of succession. However, Richard conveniently decided to use his late brother's attainder for treason as a means of blocking the two Clarence children from the throne, despite there being absolutely zero precedence for this, nor anything in the English constitution to support it. In short, Richard twisted the laws to suit his ends, and so I am dubious about the authenticity of his belief in the Eleanor Talbot and Edward IV affair. Either way, it didn't matter, for Richard did successfully remove all other contenders to the throne, and as such was offered the crown, and became King Richard III. Edward V was no longer king, and he and his brother, Richard, Duke of York, remained in the Tower of London. 
the Dowager Queen Elizabeth had been pressured into relinquishing her second son at the insistence of their uncle Richard, ostensibly to have the young York Prince provide company to his older brother. Famously, of course, the two boys would vanish inside the tower's walls and were not seen again after the summer of 1483, or at least that's what most people believe. By extension of her marriage being declared invalid, Elizabeth was stripped of her entitlements as a Queen Dowager, with all of her lands reverting to the crown. Now referred to simply as Dame Elizabeth Grey, the Queen Dowager allied herself with an unlikely source, Lady Margaret Beaufort, the mother of the sole prominent Lancastrian claimant to the throne of England, Henry Tudor. As a descendant of Edward III, Henry Tudor did have a tincture of royal blood in his veins, but then so did half the royal court, and so any attempt to overthrow the rule of Richard III would need major backing by other parties, chief amongst them the ousted Queen Dowager and her bevy of princesses. To strengthen his claim to the throne, and thus unite the two feuding noble houses of Lancaster and York, once and for all, Elizabeth and Margaret Beaufort agreed that the latter's son should marry the former's eldest daughter, Elizabeth of York, who upon the death of her brothers became the heiress apparent for the House of York. Henry Tudor agreed to the plan and in December 1483 publicly swore an oath to that effect in the Cathedral of Rennes in Brittany. On the 1st of March 1484, Elizabeth and her daughters finally came out of sanctuary after King Richard III publicly swore an oath that her daughters would not be harmed or molested and that they would not be imprisoned in the Tower of London or in any other prison. At the same time, he also promised to provide all of the princesses with marriage portions and to marry them to gentlemen born. Richard also awarded Elizabeth a pension of 700 marks per year. The family therefore returned to court, apparently reconciled to Richard III. Now, supporters of Richard III, known as Ricardians, used this as evidence that Elizabeth must have been content with the assurance that it was not Richard who was responsible for the disappearance or murder of her sons. And that is certainly a compelling argument, but equally we should also consider that perhaps Elizabeth simply felt like she had no other choice. It was a toss-up between spending their time perpetually in the bowels of Westminster Abbey and the lives of her daughters going to waste, or going back to life at the centre of the royal court. After the death of Richard III's wife Anne Neville in March of 1485, there were even rumours that the newly widowed king was going to marry his niece, Elizabeth of York, although this was pure rumour, for it was well known that actually Richard was in negotiation to marry Joanna of Portugal, and by extension, he would also marry his niece off to Manuel, Duke of Beja. Of course, the reign of Richard III would not last long. It would last just two years, and in 1485, Henry Tudor invaded England and defeated Richard at the Battle of Bosworth Field. As king, Henry VII married Elizabeth of York and had the titulus regis revoked and all copies that could be found were destroyed. The Dowager Queen was given back all of her titles and honours, but she would not be able to enjoy them for long, or without outside pressure from other parties. From the moment that Henry Tudor took the crown, Margaret Beaufort assumed the position of the Grand Dame of the Royal Court, and although the King upheld his pledge and did marry and crown Elizabeth of York, his mother remained extremely powerful and dictated much of how the court operated. Elizabeth Woodville's rank as a Queen Dowager ensured that she outranked Margaret, which for the latter was something that she simply could not countenance. Accordingly, Elizabeth retired to Bermondsey Abbey on the 12th of February 1487, where she would spend the remaining five years of her life. 
At Bermondsey, she was treated with the respect due to a dowager queen and given an ample pension by the king. She would also return to the court for major state ceremonies and was present for the birth of two of her grandchildren, including the future Henry VIII. She was also visited from time to time by her daughters, with both Elizabeth of York and Princess Cecily recorded as having spent time with their mother. By the early 1490s, however, she was becoming increasingly unwell and died at Bermondsey Abbey on the 8th of June 1492, outliving her husband by nine years. Elizabeth's funeral took place at St George's Chapel, Windsor, which is where she was then buried and remains to this day, alongside her second husband and king, Edward IV. There was much comment at the time that the funeral was deemed far too simple and without due splendour for a woman who had been Queen of England for nearly 20 years, although a clue to why this may have been the case was actually discovered as recently as 2019, when a letter written in 1511 by Andrea Badoa, the Venetian ambassador in London, was uncovered, which suggested that Elizabeth died of the plague, which would explain the haste and the lack of public ceremony following her death. Now I must admit that I first came to the attention of Elizabeth Woodville in a considerable way when I watched The White Queen for the first time. Until that point I'd been mostly only interested in the Tudors, but via The White Queen I was opened up into the world of the Plantagenets, and I would now say that I actually find this dynasty as every bit fascinating as their more famous descendants. I hasten to add that I know well that The White Queen is largely a work of fiction, but I was so fascinated by the characters that it led me down a rabbit hole and from there I became hooked. What I love about the Plantagenet dynasty, particularly towards its end, is that it produced some of the most fascinating, dynamic and brave women ever seen in English history. For there was Elizabeth Woodville of course, but there was also her incredible mother, Jaquetta, her daughter, Elizabeth of York, her key rivals, Margaret of Anjou and Margaret Beaufort, the daughters of her enemy, Isabel and Anne Neville, all of these figures were hugely influential and consequential to history, and yet are seldom discussed at any great length, perhaps with Margaret Beaufort aside. Elizabeth Woodville's tenure as Queen was one of the most volatile in history. Her husband's long battles to retain his throne were supported by Elizabeth's superb role as his key supporter and the mother of their countless children. As I referenced earlier, what makes Elizabeth and her husband so relatable, at least to my mind, is that at their crux was a genuine love story, something which cannot be said for later royal marriages. They will continue to fascinate me, I'm sure, and I hope that this episode will encourage people to take some time getting to know the Plantagenets in just as much detail as they do the Tudors. And so that brings me to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chess Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. To support the channel, perhaps you would consider joining my Patreon account from where you can access additional weekly podcasts, live chats, and coming soon, my brand new video series, Historian Unwrapped. Just head to patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest. <laughs>